I want to give a start here this morning, though. I want to give a quick shout out to our kids ministry team, uh, specifically Jackie and Elaine, who they threw on this uh, awesome Lego night for kids and families in our community this past week, socially distanced, all that type of stuff. And it was it was a great time. And so can we just give them a round of applause? Uh, we're so grateful for our kids ministry and everything they do. Uh, it got me thinking, though, because my four-year-old son just started getting into Legos. Um, and so, you know, like you, you get the Lego set, and I'm, that, I'm like that type A person where it's like, okay, here's the Lego set, here's the instructions. Okay, now we sit down, and we go page by page and whatnot. And at first, he's kind of getting it, he's into it. And then halfway through, he's like, no, I'm over it. And he just starts building, like, not even things. He's just, like, building flat surfaces. And he has this, like, five-gallon tote filled with Legos from my wife's uh, family growing up. And it just constantly, it's just dumped out across the floor. And I'll, and I'll walk into his room, and he's just sitting sitting there cross-legged on like 12 Legos. And I'm just like, dude, you don't like that, that hurts. And he's like, whatever, I've got business. I'm building a fort, he says. I was like, buddy, it's going to take you a while to build a fort out of Legos. I'm just saying, right? But it is just, it's annoying because everywhere throughout our house, it's like little landmines. You know, everywhere you step, it's like, you ever step on a Lego before? It hurts. It's like, it hurts really, really bad. It's like, why do we give our kids these things? And then they're really small and they could swallow them. It's just like, it's just one of those things. But when it comes to Legos, uh, I grew up, I'm a huge Lego guy. I love Legos, Star Wars, a lot of the nerdy stuff. Um, but it, when, you, when it comes to Legos, there's this thing that's interesting. You, for us, we have all of these pieces. And if you were just to, to, to spread them all out on the floor and look at them, you're just like, what am I supposed to do with these? I know they're supposed to go together somehow. I know there's something that I, that I can, can build up with these. But at the end of the day, you need some instructions, right? You need a little help to help you kind of put the pieces together. This one goes here and this one goes here, but not before this one. You need a four by three on this and then the single one. You need, and they all go together. And then when it, and it's, like, it's like magic. It just appears into these really cool unicorns or fluffy puppy dogs or whatever it is, right? And so when we're talking about today, when we talk about scripture, I kind of always think it's kind of like Legos. We know that we're supposed to do something with it. There's all these pieces that, that they're supposed to fit together in some form or fashion. But at the end of the day, if you're like me, we all kind of just want to sit back and say, yeah, but I need some instruction. I need someone to help me understand what am I even supposed to be doing with these in the first place. So this morning, we're going to answer two fundamental questions when it comes to the Bible. When it comes to this book, when it comes to this text, we're going to answer two fundamental questions this morning. And these are important questions. They're, they're valuable questions. Questions that you've probably asked before. Questions that, that also your, your unchurched, your, your unbelieving friends, neighbors, coworkers, if you ever engage with them in conversation about Christianity, about Jesus, they, they, they probably have these questions too. They might have even answered or asked you some of these questions and you're kind of left being like, I don't know, that's a good question. And so ultimately we want to answer these two, but I think sometimes as a church we haven't done a super good job of giving solid quality answers to these two fundamental questions. And the two questions are this. Number one is, is what is the Bible? So it's a valid question, right? We've heard of it. Most people own one, either on their phone or it's on a shelf or whatever it is. Number one, what is the Bible? But perhaps more importantly, it's that second question. It's that second question where a lot of us begin to lose steam or momentum or, or where people say, okay, I, I get what the Bible is supposedly about, but how do I know I can trust it? Why should I trust this book in the first place? 
See, this whole series is about this fundamental beliefs we have as Christians. And we, and we put it this way, it says that we need to have head knowledge that leads to heart change. That, that we need to know, we need to learn, we need to understand, not just for the sake of earning gold stars in heaven someday, but so that it can transform our hearts. The truths of God, the truths of scripture, need to penetrate our minds so that it can capture our hearts. As we read and look through scripture, we don't just see a bunch of facts, a bunch of do's or don'ts. Rather, it's a heart of this all-loving, all-powerful creator God who invites us to have a heart for people just like him. It also contains an urgent message because there's an urgent need for all people. Let's just say, let's just start here this morning. If someone asked you the question, just fundamentally, they came up to you at work, or maybe you invited some people over for, for dinner, you've got some neighbors that you're trying to, to show them the love of Christ, and then you invite them into your home, and they say, yeah, yeah, I get church, I, yeah, God, I don't really know, but just what is the Bible to begin with? What, what, what would you say? If they saw this sitting on, on your counter, and they said, what is this? To begin with, what would you say? Some people just say, well, you know, it's, a, it's an old book. I don't know. Uh, it's got some do's and don'ts in there. A lot of people want to say, well, you know, it was, it was valid at one point, but it's, it's kind of outdated. You know, it's like, it's like the guy who's, who's still walking around with, with socks and sandals on, right? It's like it was in at one point, but now it's just kind of dead. Hey, hey, if you're that guy, let me just say, if you're that guy, just, you need to stop, okay? Just move on. It's out of, right? I, I don't even apologize for that, okay? Some people just say, well, you know, it's just, it's an outdated thing. Um, it's, it's a great paperweight. It's, a, it's, got, it's like a bunch of fairy tales. It's got these stories. I know there's like a giant fish at one point, and there's this dude named Jesus. He does some magical powers and, and that type of stuff. I don't know. It's just it's stuff. And, and ultimately, you know, there's got some good insights of what to do in life, you know, t- teaches you about morality to some degree. What would you say? if you're faced with that question. See, the Bible, it's, it's, it's one book, right? It's one book. But it's really a, a small library of, of 66 different books or letters comprised, written by 40 authors over 2,000 different years. But it was inspired by one true God. There's over 1,400 chapters seven different genres, 1,189 verses in just the New Testament alone. Three parts, 700 different languages, 2,000 translations by the use of 5,600 copies of manuscripts. That in and of itself alone tells us it's got to be important, right? It's got to have some type of value to our lives. But its contents are so much deeper, so much stronger, so much more powerful than it's got some do's and don'ts. It's kind of outdated. It's a story about a sovereign God 
who created this world and us to live in harmony and shalom, this Hebrew word peace, harmony, shalom with him. It gives us the promises of God. It tells us in how we have separated ourselves because of sin. We all find ourselves distant from God. And in some ways, it's, it's a recounting of how God is putting the pieces back together over and over. And it follows this arc like any good story. There's a creation, then there's a problem, and that problem seems to get worse and worse and worse. And finally, there's a climax. There's a turning point in which a man named Jesus the son of God says I'm going to fix this once and for all and then he says cool so because of me I want to invite you into this relationship and all of that is contained here it's one book that tells us a story of a God who is real who loves you who cares for you, who has a plan for your life, who's given you gifts, is giving you the special power if you believe, if you repent of your sin to follow after That is what the Bible is. Ultimately, if we were to sum it up, it's this. It's the Bible is God's story of redemption. How things got broken from how he created and then he puts it back together by his power, his will, his words. Theologian John Stott, he said, the Bible isn't about people trying to discover God, but about God reaching out to find us. That in his holiness, out of his love, through the power of his spirit, God seeks us out to seek him in return, primarily through his word. So what the Bible teaches us about God is that there is a God who desires for us to know him, to love him, and to share him with others. What this, this outwardly teaches us about one another is that we all fall short of God's glory. That we are in need of restoration, that God sent Jesus to save us from our sin, that anyone who believes by grace through faith, that we can have new life. But then inwardly, it tells you that you are loved, that you are cared for, that you have a gift, you have passions, you have desire, and God is inviting you into that story. And the final question for us when it comes to that, is your story going to be one of redemption with God or rejection of him? Fundamentally, when it comes to the Bible, that's the, probably the one question you have to answer before you go anywhere else. Is your story going to be one in which you receive the redemption of an all-loving God, or are you going to push him aside, or are you going to reject him? Those are the only two options that we find ourselves. And so this morning, we're going to continue to answer, what is the Bible, and why shall I trust it? And we're going to do something different. We don't do this often. In fact, we've, I don't think we've ever done this. We're going we're gonna to use one uh, passage today, two verses. So if you have your Bible, I'll invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And then after that, we're going to answer the question of why should I trust the Bible without even opening the Bible? And some of you are like, whoa, 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 uh, that, that's a little weird. This is a church. Aren't we supposed to use the Bible? Because uh, I'll get to that in a second, okay? Just, just trust, trust me in order to answer that question, okay? So 2 Timothy chapter 3. What 2 Timothy, as, a, as you're turning there, turn up in your phone, get the apps. You're going to want to follow along uh, with the notes here. 2 Timothy is written by this guy named Paul to this young preacher by the name of Timothy. He's this young 20-something-year-old pastor leading this church in uh, this, this place called Ephesus. It's like modern-day Turkey. Over, they believe 5,000 people are attending this young Timothy's church. Paul started it, he planted it, he put Timothy in charge. Timothy has this faith that was passed on to him from his mother and his grandmother. But we, we see early on that Timothy, he has this, this gift to, to lead and to preach and to teach and to admonish believers. But he's having this problem that because he is young, people aren't listening to him. People are a little skeptical. 
He's just a young whippersnapper. How do we, you, know, you haven't been around the block, Timmy. You haven't been what I've been through. You haven't lived life enough to tell me how to live life and what to think about God. And so he's in this weird kind of like internal struggle with his own people. And Paul's writing to him saying, say, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example. And then he kind of says, though, but, but here's what I need you to remember as you're teaching them, admonishing them, convicting them, encouraging them. Remember, it's not about you, Timmy. It's about who you are pointing them towards. 2 Timothy chapter 3, then Paul gives us these words. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. He says, so all scripture, everything beginning to end, New Testament, Old Testament, Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is God breathed. It's this word that we get the word inspiration. It's the same word in which God created ex nihilo. Out of his breath it came. And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to do this morning as we, as we unpack what is the Bible. There's three eyes if we were going to, to understand what is the Bible in its form. Number one is that the Bible is inspired. It is, the Bible is inspired. The, it's that, that, that phrase, all scripture is God-breathed. Or your translation might literally say, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, Paul's not kind of, he's not talking about like, you know, like, you know, you hear of a painter or whatever who was, who was inspired by uh, uh, like a sunset. Well, where did you get that, 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 that idea for that painting? I don't know. I was just, I was driving home one day and I saw the cornfield and I was just inspired by it's not the same thing. It's not like this, this, this thing that moved. It's, it's literally a, a word, a term that means out of the mouth. All scripture comes from, it is out of the mouth of God. God breathe. And essentially, it tells us about the one who speaks authoritatively in our life. And there are two kind of forms in which we understand God in this life. There's one form in which is called general revelation. And then we have what is called special revelation. General revelation, we learn about this in, in, in Romans chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, that, that it says that God has made himself known by, to the general masses, to every single person who lives just by creation. You, you look at the moon, the sun, the stars, you look at the way things are, and, and you, you, just, you land at this point. That there's got to be someone or something bigger than myself. That, that's why you can go to these, 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 these tribes, these, these native people who live in these, these places that no one has ever been before. And they have this concept that there's a greater being that exists. Why? General revelation. God has made it known that there is something bigger than us that put all this in the, pl- in the first place. But then we have what is called special revelation. That's scripture. It's special. It's distinct. And it is purposeful in and of itself. You see, we don't have to struggle or toil to find a source for life, we've been given it. Through creation, through his word, we can see, we can know, we can understand God's voice, his heart, his plan for all people. So you and I alike, we find ourselves in the same boat. We have the opportunity to know God. We have the opportunity to know that sovereign, loving creator. So because the Bible is inspired, it is full of his voice. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the Bible is inerrant. This is a word that means it is without error. Now, we like to add this caveat of in its original writings. You see, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. It wasn't written in Latin. It wasn't written in German or Mandarin. The Bible was originally written in in three predominant languages. 
We have the Hebrew, the Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic sprinkled in there. And, and so we had, we had to do, in order to get our English Bibles, it had to be translated from, 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 from different languages, from the, the Latin Vulgate, the, the Jerome's version, all the way through. And that's how we get to the English version. But over the years, sometimes uh, things kind of get tweaked or adjusted by mistake. In fact, in, in the year 1631, I love this. I was studying for this, and I found this is just too good. Uh, in 1631, there was this, um, this uh, Bible called the, the Authorized Version, but it got this coin term called the Wicked Translation. Because in the, in, the, in the recounting of the Ten Commandments, so it's the 16th, uh, 1600s, right? The printing press is new, and so the process of the printing press, right? They would put all the words and the letters together, and they would print off a bunch of pages. I think that's how it worked. I made that noise, too, and stuff. Okay, and so, so the, a typist forgot the word not on the Seventh Commandment. Literally, you can read about this. It's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no other gods before me. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. And then it says, you shall commit adultery. Right? Just imagine you're, you're reading through scripture. You have this translation. You're like, whoa, that doesn't match everything else I just read. Some of us are like, oh, cool. I'm going to go find that one. And that's the one that, you know, don't do that, right? So that's why we say it is inerrant in its original writing. Since then, you know, they pulled off the shelves. It's the wicked translation. And so that's what we mean by it is inerrant. Scripture means that it is free of mistake. It's something, if it is going to be useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, it ought to be true, right? Like if somebody's going to come at you in life and say, yo, bro, you, you've been misstepping. You, 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 need to, you need to kind of make some changes to your life. Don't you want to know what they are saying is true? That there's not fault or error in what they are saying? So that's where we get to scripture. If it is useful for teaching us, rebuking us, calling us to a new way of living, it has to be free of error. And it takes us all the way back to week one. And if we believe God is holy and God speaks, then everything in his word, it must be true. Because ultimately that's what truth is. Truth is God's take on everything. It does not change. It does not alter. It is not relative. Truth is God's take on everything. The Bible is inerrant, meaning it is full of truth. Thirdly, third I, is that the Bible is infallible. It is infallible as it brings instruction, it brings empower, it brings direction of how we live so that every servant may be thoroughly equipped. Like think about it for a moment. If you needed to figure out how to do something new in life, you're new to a job and you're trying to figure out a new skill, you're, you're, you're becoming a tradesman, you're working on a craft, what do you need more than anything else? You can read all the books, you can read car mechanics for dummies, you can read all, all of the things, but until you actually do it and someone shows you how, that direction, that power, that competency, it's important. You know, I'm a part of this, uh, this Facebook group called Dude Dad's DIY, and it's really cool. Well, in one way, it's like super like, uh, like humbling for me because these guys who are like, yeah, in like 20 minutes, I built this awesome uh, mantle, and it's covered in all this stone, and it's got this input fireplace. Yeah, I do it with my spare time, no big deal. And I'm like, um, yeah, uh, I fixed a leg on our table by screwing it in a little tighter, <laughs> you know, right? And so it's funny because so people will post like, hey, 
I'm, I'm having problems with my electrical. What's going on here? This light doing da da da. And so people start, start answering. Well, have you tried uh, rewriting the wire? Have you tried replacing it? Da-da. And people are giving all this advice. And then finally, without fail, this guy will pop on and be like, as a licensed electrician, what everyone else said is wrong. Here's what you need to do. And so in some ways, that's what the Bible is saying, is that it is infallible. There's all of this advice of how to live life. There's all of this, this insight. You should do this. You should think this way. You should feel this way. You should go here. You should use your money this way. You should uh, spend time with these uh, type of people. And this is what true relationship. There's all of this advice that comes to us about how to live life. But the only source that is infallible cannot fail you in directing you of how to live a God-honoring and pleasing life is Scripture. It is full of power. Because at the end of the day, we are all discipled by something. At the end of the day, when you go home at night, think about this. You are being discipled. You are being curated by something or someone in your life. Is it your job? Your square footage? Your kids? Your schedule? Your bank account? What is it that's curating, discipling you in your life today? We are all being by, discipled by someone or something. And if something is going to direct us towards God, it has to be inerrant, it has to be infallible, it has to be inspired by God. That when we know the giver of life who speaks life, we know then how to live life. If we believe God to exist, the holy and triune God, then his word doesn't just carry truth, but it carries hope and meaning and power and therefore, it makes us, makes it the, the, the authority of our life. We're going to talk a little bit about this more next week, but it becomes the preeminent source of what you do, of who you are, of how you find God, experience God, of the obedience of your life. So let's shift gears here for a second, though. So just because you, you might be here this morning saying, Eric, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I get these three eyes. That's why I'm here. I'm here at church. Or you might be new with us saying, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to understand, do I even want to be in? Do I believe, do I trust God and his word? You can believe that it's a story of a loving God. You can believe that it's inspired. You can believe that it's inerrant. You can believe that it's infallible. But there's still that lingering question. Why should I trust it in the first place? Why should I believe a word that it says? So this is where you can go ahead and do this this morning. If you have your Bible or if you have the Bible, Bible, go ahead and close it. Go ahead and close it. If you're taking notes, take notes. You're going to want to follow along with us. Because here's why my heart is for this. We are called to, to share our faith, to share the gospel with people. But if people don't believe scripture, you can't come at them with scripture. If they're pushing back, saying, 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 hey, 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 Steve, I don't believe in the Bible. Your answer for them can't be, well, you should. Like, we got to have a better answer than, than uh, well, you know, I just, uh, well, this verse, John chapter 3, verse 16, and then I say, I don't even believe that in the first place. So how do we even begin to, if we love people and care about them and we have this urgency to reach them, we have to stop being so dumb and naive with the answer of why should I trust the Bible in the first place? Because we typically give one of three answers, don't we? Why should I trust the Bible, Eric? Well, uh, number one, well, I was raised that way. Mom took me to, 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 to VBS. I went to Sunday school. I was just raised with it. That's why I trust it. 
Okay, well, I wasn't. Does that mean I get a pass? I didn't find Jesus. I didn't find church until I was uh, almost 11 years old. Does that mean I get to kind of check out? There's people in your life that you work with, that you live next to, who have never stepped foot inside a church, probably never opened a Bible, and they're asking this question, and that's all you can come up with. It's not going to do any good. Second one is, well, it, it works for me. I did what it says. It's made my life better. I'm a happier person. I have hope like never before. And I get that sentiment because I believe in the power of scripture. But if you go up to someone who says, well, it worked for me. And someone says, yeah, smoking a lot of weed works for me. Does that mean it's true? Right? Like that, that, that can't be the answer. If someone says, yeah, I got this squirrel on my back porch and every morning I ask it to bless me as I go to work and I have a good day every time I do that. Does that mean that every squirrel that we can sacrifice stuff to is going to help our life? Just because it works for me, that's not a good answer. Third one, hear this all the time. Why do I trust the Bible? Because the Bible says so. Right? Circular reason. I trust the Bible because the Bible says so, because it tells me to trust the Bible. And people are saying, I don't, I'm not there. So we have to get rid of these bad answers. These are terrible answers, and we need to meet them head on. Because none of these are overly convincing. Jude, the, the, the prophet, not my son, the prophet Jude in the end of the New Testament. He's in, 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 in verses 22 and 23. He says, we must be merciful towards those who got the word merciful means we must meet them so that we can snatch them out of the fire. There are people in your life that we need to snatch out of the fire, but we need to meet them. We need to be merciful, understanding where they are. If we love them and believe in the power of scripture, we have to have a better and stronger answer than one of those three. So, so, so listen to me for a second. If you are a parent, if you are a high schooler, a college student, or just, just anyone in general, but specifically those three, because those are the questions, I, those people I get all the time. Listen to this answer, okay? If you can memorize this answer, I'm going to show you in a second, then, then I guarantee you will have a foot in the door to share with people, okay? There's this, this pastor by the name of Vadi Bakum, and he puts it this way. When he asks, why should I trust the Bible? He says this. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writing are divine rather than human in origin. If you, if you took this and someone said, why should I trust the Bible? And you gave them that answer. They would be like, oh, oh. That, that, that is a different story. You're not coming out with them. You know, Gma took me to Sunday school when I was a kid. That's why I believe. Well, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible. Therefore, that's why I believe. No, no, he is a, he's not getting rid of any of the three eyes, but he is saying based on history, based on the way that we confirm that every document is, 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 is chosen to be correct. He says, that is why I believe. Not, it works for me because the Bible says so, but because of what we call historicity. Historicity, it's the method that historians or writers or archaeologists assert and commonly assume the authentic, uh, authenticity or origin of an event or a person. Like you ever watch, uh, anybody in here uh, like, like to watch CSI like, or any of those crime shows? It's okay. Okay, so it's just me. Sweet. All right. Uh, should I just, okay. So in like CSI and the crime shows, right, what do they need to do in order to like convict someone? They always got to like find evidence. There's like a paper trail they got to discover. They got to go, go, oh, we got to get the, the video feed off that. You know what never happens in these shows? 
It's like, like CSI Miami, CSI New York, CSI Los Angeles, CSI Albuquerque, CSI South Dakota. I know there's like 50,000 of them now, right? You know what never happens at the beginning of the episode? Steve, uh, a guy steals a car and, and the agents walk up to somebody like, hey, were you here last night when a car was stolen? The guy was like, yeah, Steve did it. Okay, cool. I'm going to write there. Can I follow? And then they go to another person. Yeah, I was here last night. Steve did it. Okay, that's what they're, and they go to another person, yeah, yeah, Steve. At that point, they just say, we're going to guess that Steve stole the car. We're going to go find Steve, and we're going to probably find the car. It's what we call corroborating eyewitness testimony. That the eyewitness account of multiple people coming together is the, the surest way of proof. And we do the same thing with documents throughout antiquity, throughout history. We ask three questions. Number one, when was the original written? Number two, when is the next copy of that? And number three, how many copies of that original do we have? And that's how we begin to dissect. Okay, well, if, if there was a copy and someone made a copy and those are closely, and then, and then the more copies we have, then if nine out of these 10, but this 10, we can throw that one out, right? And this is how we go. So let me show you, you know, everyone's kind of like, okay, what is happening around? Let me show you this chart and what I mean by this. I'm going to put up this graph for a second. It's going to come up on the screen as well. So we have these authors that every single person would probably say, I, be, I, I think he was real. I believe that what he wrote was true. No one ever argues about these guys. We have the dates in which their, 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 their documents were written. We have the earliest copy. And then, we, then I did some math for you. Here's the time between the first copy, the number of copies you have, and then the accuracy between copies. You step into any philosophy room in college, Masterclass online, whatever it is, and you drop the name Plato or Aristotle, people can be like, yeah, he was real. He wrote stuff. We believe it. We think it's good. And even between all of those, look at that. The difference between the original and the first copy is over a thousand years. And we have less than 50 copies for Aristotle, Plato, Caesar, and his Galactic Wars. We, we use that to talk about what was history like during that era. And, and there's not even a formula of accuracy. Homer, the Iliad, this great epic story that has a lot of good language and, and stuff that we use in our life. And then people say, yeah, yeah, but you know what? I can't trust the Bible. It was changed too much. I, I can't trust scripture because how do I know they actually wrote it? And you look at this, the New Testament written about a couple decades after the life of Jesus. The earliest copy of the New Testament came in 130 AD, less than 100 years. We have 5,600 manuscript copies with 99.5% accuracy. So, so here's what I never hear. I never hear someone, hear the stories of someone busting into their, their, their college room and say, yeah, yeah, but professor... How do we know about, about Plato or Aristotle? How do we know that they were real? How do we know that they actually wrote those things or not? Well, Eric, how do, how, how do we know? How do we know they just didn't make it up? Well, first and foremost, there's 25,000 archaeological digs that confirm that the places and people and spots of Scripture were real. But more importantly, think about this. The self-deprecation in the writing. If these writers, they didn't gain any power or money or prestige as a result of, of, of passing these along. They had zero motive. Think about this for a second. If you were Peter, okay, and you were writing out the New Testament, all these letters, and you wanted to be emperor of Rome during that time, you know what you're going to leave out? 
You're going to leave out the parts in which uh, you made a mistake. You're going to leave out the part in which that, 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 that little girl with the raggedy Ann doll came up to you and said, don't you believe in Jesus? And he was like, no, get away from me, girl. And he runs away and denies it, right? You're going to leave out the stuff that makes you look bad. But because it's true. Think about, think about James, the brother of Jesus. If you have a sibling and that sibling walked in and said, hey, I, uh, I got to tell you something. It's kind of important. It's a big deal. Okay, what is it? I'm God. Oh, like, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm God. You need to bow down and worship me. I'm going to tell you what to do with your life, and you just, you just follow. You cool with that? All of us will be like, no, I'm going to punch you in the face, you idiot. Get out of here, right? Like, like the self-deprecation in, in, the, in the form of writing. But more importantly, there was zero motive for these guys to write this down because every single time they found one of these eyewitnesses, they were stoned, they were beheaded, they were quartered. Like imagine someone found you, you were one of these early writers or someone copying the manuscripts and they busted into your room and they tied all four of your limbs to four separate horses. And they said, either renounce what you have said or we're gonna tell them all to giddy up. If what you were writing was false, if what you were writing is fake, would you still in that moment be committed to it if it wasn't the authoritative inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. We close here this morning. Because I think if you're like me, your mind begins to kind of say, okay, okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. So then Eric, why do people struggle with this? Why, why is this even a debate? Why is this even a problem that we have? And I think it's because of this. It's not one of science. It's not one of history. It's because if such a text existed, and you knew that. You knew that it was real. You knew that it was palpable. You knew that it was full. If, if such a text existed, you would have to adjust your life to it, wouldn't you? That everything it says, everything it commands, every time it pushes back against your pride, your sinfulness, the culture that we live in, every single time it pushes back on that, you would be faced with no choice to say, but yet... This is the authority of life. This is how I must live. If God is real and this is his word and it's a story of how he has redeemed and rescued me, this is what I do. That is why I think this, this debate still continues to exist because people, we just know if it is what it is, then we have to change our life. We have to change how we spend our time, our priorities, what we do with our paychecks. We have to change how we view sexuality. We have to change everything about us, the language we use. Everything comes down to this, that, that, that we must begin to apply our lives to the Bible, not the Bible to our lives. And we're gonna pick this up next week. If the Bible is what it claims to do, we must adjust to it. Not to try to get it to, to fit what myths or, or cultural relativism or ideologies that, that, that we want to employ throughout our life. To me, that's why the debate exists. It's because we're sinful. We're prideful people. We don't want to give up the stuff that makes us feel good. And so we try to get around it by saying, well, I don't know. Is the Bible real? I don't know. I don't know. Can we trust it? I, I, I don't know. How do we know all the writers? Are? How do we know the copies? How do we know? And we have all this proof. Because at the end of the day, I think what people are really saying, I don't want to change. It can penetrate my mind, but is it going to capture your heart above all else? If the Bible is authoritative, 
what are we going to do with it? If God has spoken, then we should live as if he has. As we move to our time of response this morning, I'm going to go ahead and slide this over here. I want you to just think about what what Scripture compels us to, calls us to. There's this, this aspect in which we have a loving God who looks at the state of our, of our world, our creation, and says, I have a desire for everyone to know me, to be rescued from the bondage of their sin, that by what scripture says, that belief and faith in my son. And he says, but this is a call for all of us. Jesus said, all authority, the Great Commission, Matthew 20, all authority has been given unto me. Go and make disciples of all nations. There's this component in which if we believe the Bible, we believe the heart of God, then our heart should be captured and changed to say there are people who we love, people who we care about, people who we are married to, people who live in the same houses, people who we work next to. That if we believe in the authority of Scripture, when God says, go, I'm going to be with you. My spirit will be in you. I will give you the words. It will transform you and it will transform them. Are we going to listen? When the Bible says, reject your ways, your past, you are a new creation, live for me. Be different than the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. How you treat your finances, how you treat your spouse, how you raise your kids, how you set up your schedule Monday through Sunday, all of that needs to change. Spend time with me in my word. Come to me in prayer. Disciplines to draw into my presence through through fasting. He says, I've given you a gift, each one of you. If you're in the spirit, you have a gift that can be of power to alter eternity for the kingdom of God. Are you willing to give up a little bit of sleep? Some of your time? Are you willing to watch two hours of Netflix instead of three hours so that every day you can spend time with God? If we believe the Bible is what it says it is, it's gonna mature in us. But then it also talks about we need to go. We need to be. We have opportunity before us each and every day, each and every moment. I think for all of us, myself included, almost fell off the stage. That would have been bad. Myself included, not just do I know it here, but do I live it here? If you're like me, you're resonating with that deeply. Most of us, we don't have a problem with, with nodding and, and saying, yeah, 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 the scripture is real, God is real, Jesus, all that type of stuff. Our, our disconnect is for that, that head knowledge to translate into heart change. And when we open the word, when we open those, those verses, when we open those passages, we see the story unfold, we are quick to say, yes, I believe it to be true. But then we need to catch up. We need to live as if it is. What is the Bible? It is the story of God's redemption. But why should I trust it? If history paints that picture. But ultimately, are we living as if it is the true authority of God? As we respond this morning, we want to invite all of you to partake in communion with us. Whether you're sitting here in this room or you're catching us online, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together. And in his word, Jesus said on his final night with his disciples, 
moments before that story of redemption was gonna hit that turning point, change the narrative, that, that, that atoning sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus said, there's gonna have to be someone who pays the price for that sin, but guess what? Jesus said, it's gonna be me on your behalf. He held up the bread. He broke it in half. And he said, take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In that same moment, he held the cup, he held the wine. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. As we continue to worship this morning, we invite you to respond with us. Do prayer. You can get out that app. You can send in a prayer request. As Aaron talked about earlier, if we're going to trust the Bible, if we're going to believe the Bible, when God says 10%, that tithe belongs to me. Trust me. That's perhaps your next step. It's to start somewhere. Maybe it's zero and you need to say, okay, I'm going to start giving, giving 5%, but I'm going to set it up. God's been good to us. We've been giving 10. We're going to give 12. I don't know what it is, but there's this, this obedience that comes with following the words of God. We're also going to spend a few more moments singing songs that praise and worship the God who our word talks about, commends us to sing the praises of his holy name. Would you stand with us this morning as we continue to worship not just the God of the Bible, but the God of the universe.